We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. We take what we call a sequential and expository approach to Scripture. And so we've been making our way through the book of Ephesians, and we've made it to chapter 4 where we've been for quite some time. But those of you who have been with us will remember that in the 22nd verse of Ephesians chapter 4, that Paul told us that those people who have such privileged position in Christ as ours should be people who have put off their old patterns of living. They should be people who have put off the old ways of doing things and the dirty clothes, and they should be people who have put on the new self and put on a new way of life. He tells us that we should behave like people whose minds have been renewed. We should conduct ourselves as if we have new minds having been created in the likeness and the righteousness and the holiness of God. That's how we're to live now. And as part of that instruction, Paul has been telling us that we're no longer to be characterized by the old patterns of life, but that we should behave in a way that is fitting for people of such great privilege as those of you who have a position of righteousness before God in Jesus Christ. And he says to us, you see those people over there who don't know God? Do you see those people over there who don't know God? Do not act like them. Do not do what they do. Rather, you should conduct yourselves like this. And then he gives us instruction as to the ways that we should behave. And he begins right away in verse 25 by saying, you see, unlike everyone else in the world, you should put away falsehood. You should put away lying. And we spoke about that to some extent. He said, you should commit yourselves to speaking only that which is true. And then he goes on to tell us, as we learned last time we were together, that we are not to allow ourselves to become angry with an unrighteous anger, but that we are to be angry only with the righteous anger. And we talked about that for a little while, too. He says that we should not be angry about the things that we perceive to be an offense against ourselves or offense against our own rights or against our own privilege, but we should only be angry about the things that offend God. And we should be angry about the things that are an affront to God. We should be angry at sin and we should be angry about its hold on humanity and on the world. And today as we make it to verse 28, we come to the next distinctive that makes us look very different from the people who do not know God. It's the thing that makes the Ephesians look very different from the people of Artemis. And this next behavior which distinguishes those who believe from those who do not know God is really remarkable. Did you know that employee theft, which includes stealing of inventory, falsification of time cards, embezzling, and other forms of employee theft account for more than $50 billion of losses every year? Did you know that the average company in the United States gives up as much as 5% of its annual revenue to employee theft? And that's just the employee theft. And then if you would pause for a moment to consider all of the non-employee theft, you would find that every year in the United States that more than $44 billion in merchandise is lost through shoplifting. $44 billion. Did you know that the cost of shoplifting alone to the average American consumer is nearly $500 per year in increased prices? Do you know that you would save $500 a year if people would stop stealing? Every year in the United States, more than 2 million homes are burglarized with losses in excess of $14 billion. More than 773,000 vehicles are stolen every year in the United States, accounting for more than $6 billion in financial losses. Are you adding this up as we go? 
you know what the most commonly stolen car is in the United States? The Honda Civic. Just in case you're interested. Car break-ins are so numerous that they can hardly even be counted. But some nights, as many as 100 have been reported in the city of Milwaukee alone, and those are only the ones that have been reported. The average car break-in takes less than 60 seconds. Every year in the United States, there are more than 400,000 robberies. 400,000. So as you can see, theft and stealing are pervasive. It's absolutely everywhere, isn't it? And they take many different forms. Theft and stealing take many different forms, and they are virtually everywhere you look. They are absolutely everywhere you look. And as I researched the various motivators behind theft in the U.S. and stealing in the U.S., I found that some people do it simply for the adrenaline rush. They get a kick out of avoiding trouble. They get a kick out of stealing from other people. They get some sort of a rush out of stealing things that don't belong to them. They get a feeling of power out of robbing people. I can remember as a six-year-old boy going through a phase in my life where I like to steal things. I can remember going to K&E Market on my way home from school to steal a pocket full of Tootsie Rolls. Yeah, some people call them Tootsie Rolls. I call them Tootsie Rolls. Now think about that. Did I need the Tootsie Rolls? <laughs> Did I need them? Clearly not. But I wanted them. And I got a kick out of stealing them. It felt good to know that I had gotten away with something, and so I did it. I can still remember the, the feeling that it gave me as I walked out of the store and I took them out of my pocket and I began to eat them and share them with my sister, who later told on me. But listen, a lot of people do those kinds of things just because they get a kick out of them. But as I was thinking about it and continuing to dig, I found that some people do it because they feel they have as much a right to the nice things as the victim but they haven't gotten the same breaks as the victim, and so I'll just take it from them because I deserve it as much as they do. But what I found was most common, most commonly the motivator was that people are desperate. They're desperate for money. They're desperate for drugs. They're desperate for whatever. And stealing to get what they want is much faster, and it's much easier than getting a job and working for their income. That's what they said. That's the way it is in this world, isn't it? I see something that I want, I'll just take it. That's the way people do it in this world. You see, they see something they don't have, they want it, and so they rob and they steal and they take those things from other people. But listen, friends, for people of our position, things should be different, shouldn't it? For people of our position, our behavior should be very different. Let's go to verse 28 of chapter 4, and we're just going to read the first part. This is what Paul says. Let the thief... No longer steal. If you are a thief, stop stealing things. Paul says, do you see those people over there who are robbing one another and stealing from one another? You are not ever to behave like that. You are not ever to do that. And I think as a general rule, we've got no problem with that, do we? Wouldn't we agree with that? I mean, I don't have to worry right now about somebody slipping up and getting out of the, the building and going out in the parking lot and breaking into all the cars as we park here going to church. We don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry that any of you are going to come while we're at work during the week and break into my home and steal all of the things that I have. 
I probably don't have to worry about that here. None of us is going around burglarizing things and stealing things. We're probably not shoplifting things, are we? But let me share with you a couple of areas where I think that even believers may be vulnerable to the temptation of stealing. Can I do that this morning? Do you know that nearly 45% of all employees who are required to keep time cards report having committed some form of time card fraud? Did you know that? 45% of all employees are guilty of time card fraud. And this type of stealing, this is interesting because it takes many different forms. And people, I think, who work from home seem to be particularly vulnerable to it, it says. Here's what time card fraud can look like. Employees sometimes will participate in extended personal activities while they're on the clock. What does that look like? Well, maybe you're texting at work. Maybe you're calling somebody while you're at work. Maybe you're talking to your friends and family while you're at work. Maybe you're spending some time on Facebook. By the way, your employer will never know. I'll just spend a few extra moments in the bathroom. Employees will sometimes participate in activities that are a conflict of interest while they're on the clock. That happens often. You hear that often in the political field. A government employee may do campaign work. How many times have you heard about that? Government employees doing campaign work while they're supposed to be on the time card doing their jobs. How about employees who take longer than allowed lunch breaks? How about employees who punch out for 30 minutes and they take 40? Have you thought about that? What about employees who show up 15 minutes late and they punch in at the top of the hour? Do you know what that is? The stealing. It's time card fraud. But no believer would ever do that, would he? Those aren't the kinds of things that we do, would we? I think we do. I think we often take longer than allowed. I think we often punch in earlier than we're supposed to. But Paul says, for believers, you're not supposed to do those kinds of things. Do you do those kinds of things? Paul says you are to be different than everyone else. He says, you see the rest of the people in the workplace who do those kinds of things? Do not do that. Or what about this? Maybe you have a company vehicle and you're required to track your mileage for business and personal use. And so you report a little bit heavy on the business use so that you can report just a little bit lighter on the personal use and pay less tax. We wouldn't do that, would we? Maybe you have an expense account. And maybe you've gone out to lunch or dinner with your wife or a friend. And then you've taken the receipt and you've turned it in on your expense account. And you've called it legitimate business expense. Do you know that's stealing? That's stealing. It's fraud. Those things characterize people who do not know God. Those are the kinds of things that people who do not know God are doing. Do you know another form of stealing that Christians are not immune to? How about tax fraud? Have you ever thought of that? Maybe you've been tempted as you were filling out your taxes to claim more deductions than you had coming to you. Maybe you have added an extra zero onto the end of your charitable contribution page. Maybe you had some income that you concealed from the federal and state governments so that you could pay no taxes on it. Friends, that's stealing. And Jesus says that we are not to avoid paying taxes. Do you know that? Jesus says, render unto Caesar what? What is Caesar's? Give to him what belongs to him. And when he said that, he was speaking specifically about paying taxes. Jesus directly said to the disciples, don't refuse to pay your taxes. Don't try to get out of paying your taxes. Pay your taxes. Yet, I think a lot of times believers tend to be tempted in that area. And I think those are just a couple of the obvious things that jumped out at me as I was considering how we might be guilty of stealing. But now I want to share a couple of you that come from the Bible, a couple cautions from the Word of God about stealing. How about the non-payment of debt? Had you ever thought of that? I want to show you Psalm 37.21. Take a look at this. 
The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and he gives. Did you know that for you to owe a debt to a creditor and to not pay it back is stealing? Did you know that? Is everybody still with me this morning? In fact, not only does the Word of God say that for you to not pay debt back is stealing, Psalm 37 says it's wickedness. It's wicked for you to do that, it says. The average American home has almost $7,000 in credit card debt. The average American home has $28,000 in auto loans. The average American home has $47,000 in student loans and about $180,000 in mortgage payments that they owe. And for the most part, we get that. We understand these are bills that we have. We understand that we made a choice to do these things. We may not like paying them, but we know that we have to pay them because they're expenses that we have incurred on our own choice. We've incurred these expenses by our own free will. And so typically we pay them, don't we? I mean, obviously. We know that it's sinful for us to have these kinds of debts and to not maintain them and to not pay them off. We know that. We know that that's true. For you to borrow $7,000 from your credit card company to buy things that you just have to have because you can't wait another week, because you can't wait until payday, because you can't wait until you have the money saved up to do it, for you to borrow that kind of money and to not pay it back, we know that's stealing, don't we? You don't have to be told that. You get that. You know that you're stealing if you default on your student loans. You know that you're stealing if you default on your car loans. We can understand that. But what about this? Did you know that one of the most commonly one of the most commonly handed over bills? So one bill that is most commonly handed over to collection agencies is the medical bill. Did you know that medical debts are a lot different than every other debt, aren't they? Why is that? Well, because as a general rule, we don't choose to get sick, right? As a general rule, we don't choose to overspend on our medical bills. People choose to overspend with their credit cards, but you don't choose to have a car wreck. You don't choose to have a heart attack. Your child did not choose to break his leg at recess. And we know that all the other expenses and all the other bills are things that we have chosen to sign up for. We know that. We get that. But, you know, Scott, the expense of insurance is just so high. It costs so much money to carry insurance. And the hospitals are just ripping you off, man. Have you seen how much they charge for a pair of rubber gloves? They're making enough money. They'll never miss the $5.28 that I haven't paid on my copay. Have you ever been there? Most people have. And I think it's sometimes easier to let those bills go, thinking to yourself, I'm being treated unfairly by the medical industry. Those hospitals are ripping me off. I'm letting those go. And I want you to know that all of those things may be true. They may be ripping you off. They may be charging you more than they need to. But I want you to understand that it's stealing for us to take the service and to take the benefit that the service provides and to not pay for it. That's stealing. Here's a really fun one. How about this? The book of Exodus tells us that if we borrow anything from our neighbor and we lose it, or we break it, and we don't replace it. Did you know you're stealing from your neighbor when you do that? How many of you have ever done that? I can remember as a kid having done that. We borrowed a wagon, lived on a farm, and we were moving hay or something. I remember borrowing a wagon, and my tractor, I was going up a hill, and it jumped out of gear, and it I was so little I could hardly reach the brake pedal. It started rolling backwards, and I had this 
borrowed trailer on the back of it and eventually ran right up over the top of it and destroyed the trailer that we had borrowed. Yeah. My dad fixed it, fortunately. But those things happen all the time, don't they? Have you ever borrowed something from your neighbor? Have you ever borrowed his garden hoe and broke it and just, he'll never know, just let it go? Have you ever done that? That happens. Has anybody ever done that to you? For us to do things like that is for us to steal. Borrowing something and breaking it and not replacing it. Let me just share a few more with you. I'm going to take you to Proverbs 16.11. There are a couple of Proverbs I want to share with you. How about this? Honest scales and balances are from the Lord. All the weights in the bag are of His making. Now let's take a look at Proverbs 11.1. The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are to His delight. Do you know what scales are? Do you know what that means? They use scales to conduct commerce. And so when the Bible talks about just scales, we're talking about commercial fairness. So listen, if a man said, I will give you a certain measure of wheat in exchange for a certain measure of oil, and then as he was weighing out the wheat, he used a weight on his scale that was a little lighter than it was supposed to be, or a little heavier rather than it was supposed to be, he was stealing because he wasn't weighing out as much wheat as he was supposed to. And so it was stealing for him to give less than he had promised. It was stealing for him to take more than he had promised. Do you see the application of this? When you go to the grocery store and the clerk gives you money in change for something that you've purchased and they give you an extra buck and you keep it, friends, you're stealing. That's what the Bible is talking about. You're using an unjust scale. You're using an unjust scale, and the Bible says that that's stealing. Have you ever gone to Walmart and seen something that was obviously mispriced? You see five of them on the shelf, four of them are priced right, and you find one that's got the wrong tag on it, and you know that it's wrong. And you pick it up, and you run to the clerk, and you say, "Uh uh-uh, this says that it's $5 less than that. And when you rang it up, it rang up at the wrong price. Have you ever done that? That's commercial unfairness. You're stealing from those people because you know the truth. You know what it's supposed to cost, and yet you take it up to the counter and you pretend that it was priced wrongly. When you know, I mean, you know that it was priced wrongly, and you pretend that it's the right price, but you know. Friends, that's stealing. That's what the Bible is teaching. That's using an unjust scale, and those are all forms of commercial unfairness. I want you to know that. But I want you to know the Bible also warns of employers who steal from their workers by paying less than they deserve. I'm going to share one more form of stealing for you from the book of Malachi. Levitical law required of Jewish worshipers that they bring spotless animals, that they bring perfect animals as an offering to the Lord. You see, man was required to bring a perfect and costly offering to the Lord. King David said, I will not bring to the Lord that which costs me nothing. He says, I'm going to only give the Lord the very best that I have. And by the time they got to the book of Malachi, worshipers had gotten to the place that worship had become very mundane and had become very humdrum. It was commonplace. And not only that, it had become a little bit of a burden for them. It had become a burden for them. And so they started going through their flocks of animals as they were looking for their sacrifices, and they would find the ones that were sick, they would find the ones that were going to die anyway, and they would take those animals to the temple, and they would use those animals as an offering to God. I mean, after all, why would I waste a perfectly good animal? I'm just taking it there to kill it. Why would I waste a perfectly good animal? Why kill one that is healthy and has the potential to reproduce and provide much good offspring? Why would I do that? Why not just kill the one that's going to die anyway? I'm still making an offering. 
Do you see that? And that's what they began to do. And they would say, what difference could it possibly make? Why not sacrifice the one that's going to die anyway? I'm still bringing the offering. I'm still burning it. I'm still giving you a gift. But Levitical law required the best. And did you know that Levitical law also required a tithe or a tenth of the first fruits of the field? It was the very first of the yield of the fields. It was the very best. They were to bring a tenth of the very first and the very best as a sacrifice to the Lord. But you know what they were doing? By the time you get to the book of Malachi, they were taking just whatever they could find. They were bringing just whatever they had. You see, they had stopped giving the Lord the tithe of the first fruits, and they were saying, that's good enough. This is what I have left. This is what I'm going to give you. That's good enough. And then the Lord responded to the prophet Malachi 3.8, and he said this, Will man rob God? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and in your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. You see, God actually pronounced a curse on the entire nation because they were bringing just good enough to the Lord. They were bringing just what was enough to get by. I'm bringing something. What difference does it make? What difference does it make if it's the best I've got? What difference does it make if it's the tithe? I'm just going to bring my contribution. It's good enough. It's all I can afford to give to him right now. And I'm going to bring what I've got to the house of the Lord. And I want to make sure that I'm bringing something. But listen to me. The tithes and the contributions that the Lord required were to ensure that there was enough resource for the temple to operate according to God's design. The gifts and the offering that the Jews were bringing were less than God had required of them. They were less than God deserved, and as such, they were robbing God by not bringing the whole tithe to the storehouse. They were stealing from Him so that they would have more for themselves. Isn't that what it really comes down to? It's not so much that I don't want to give to God, it's just I like having the stuff for myself. And so they weren't bringing the best portion. It was stealing. And it says that they weren't just stealing, they were stealing from God. Can you imagine? They were stealing from God. Friends, listen. When we bring our worship of giving to God... For us to give less than the very best and for us to give less than the most costly is for us to say, that's good enough. And it's to steal from God. Let's move on. I want to take a look at the second part of verse 28. And this is what it says. It says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Listen, you see those people over there? Do you see those people over there? Those people for whom stealing is a pattern of life? Don't be like them. Rather do honest work with your hands. Listen, the alternative to stealing, the opposite of stealing is work. That is God's plan for man. It is God's design that man should do honest work. It is God's design that man should do honorable work. His work should be that which brings honor to God. And as believers, we should never be involved in the kind of work that causes us to compromise righteous standards. We should never be involved in the kind of work that causes us to mislead others. We should never be involved in a profession or a business that causes us to dishonor God by either violating his commands or misleading and bringing harm to other people. That's not honest work. Man should do work that is agathos, good, wholesome. He should do that which is honorable. Did you know that after God created the earth, he created man and he put him into the garden and he made him do what? Good work, didn't he? Take a look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. This is what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to do what? To work it 
and to keep it. And so God took Adam after he had created him, and he put him to work, and he told him that he was supposed to work the ground, that he was supposed to take care of the plants and the animals, and he was doing what Paul calls honorable or honest or good work. That's what he was doing. And the good thing is that Adam got something in return, didn't he? Adam got something out of it. Well, what was that? Take a look at verse 16. The Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And we know in verse 17 it says, except the one in the middle. We know that. But the point is that he says, go work the garden and you may eat of everything that it brings forth. What was the return for Adam's work? It was that he got to do what? He got to eat. Do you see that? The reward for his work was that he got to eat. The worker, the Bible teaches us, is worth his wage, friends. Listen, Adam would tend the garden, and in return, he got to eat the fruit of the garden that he was tending. Do you understand? He was able to enjoy the fruit of his labor. He ate the thing that his work produced. You work, you eat. On the other hand, What does 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says? It says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Listen to this. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This is the opposite of what Adam was doing, isn't it? It's important for man to earn his keep. Do you know that? It is important for man to earn his keep. That's God's design. And Paul emphasizes that here in verse 28 where he states emphatically doing good work and he sticks in this word with his own hands. He's to do good work with his own hands. Paul says, use your own hands to make a living for yourself. Don't try to earn a living by taking from those people who are around you who are working. Use your own hands and get to work. Provide for yourself and don't live by mooching off of everybody else. Get in, get to work, put your hands to work and earn for yourself so that you can eat. In fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul uses even stronger language than that. I want to show you chapter 5 and verse 8. Look at this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. Is that pretty clear? Paul's telling us that we need to put our hands to work doing honest and honorable work, and that we should do that to care for our families and to provide for our households. Men, listen to me. This is super important. Listen to me. This is a stern warning that you are to be doing honest work. Men, you need to be doing honest work, whatever that looks like, to provide for your family to the greatest extent that you are physically capable. You need to be providing for your family. If you are an able-bodied person, if you have the capacity to work and you are not working to support your immediate and even your extended families, you have denied the faith and Paul says that you're even worse than that. He says even unbelievers provide for their families. Even unbelievers put food on the table. If you don't provide for your family, you're even worse than the unbelievers. You're even worse than those people out there who are behaving the way that they should not behave. There are legitimate circumstances, I understand. There are legitimate circumstances in which people are disabled to the point that they are unable to do honest work for their families, to provide for their families. I get that. And that is true. And in those cases, it is right for the rest of the family and for you, as you will see later in our message today, but it is right for us in even the church to support and provide for those people. That is right. But in cases where people are able to work and they are just simply choosing to not work because society provides some form of a path for them to remain idle, 
They're denying the faith. That's what the Bible teaches. They're worse than unbelievers. Those people who are able to work should do an honest work. They should get up and do an honest work to the extent that they're able to do that to provide for themselves and their families. Parents, listen to me, and especially dads. One of the most valuable things that you can teach your children, and especially your boys, is the value of work. Teach your children to work. Teach your children to work. Teach your children the value of doing the right thing before God to work for a day's living. Model it for them. Model that for your boys. Let them see you getting up early in the morning, day after day after day, going to work and making a living so that you can provide for them, so that you can provide for your families. Let your boys see you do that. Teach them very early in their lives the value of working. Teach your children that they need to understand that if you do not work, you do not eat. Teach them that biblical principle. Tell them that work is not an option for believers. It's not an option for people who believe and who speak the name of God. Give them chores to do. Put them to work. Make them work in the yard. Make them take out the trash. Make them clean up. Make them do stuff. Don't let them sit there playing video games all day. Put them to work and make them understand the value of doing honorable agathos work. Honest work. Sorry, kids. (laughs) Now listen, there are two reasons, and I'm going to share those with you quickly, but there are two reasons that we should do an honest day's work and teach our kids to do an honest day's work. Listen, first of all, honest work keeps you from the sin of disorderliness. Okay, so I'm going to take you back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to take you to verse 11. For we hear, this is Paul speaking, that some among you walk in idleness, not at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul is telling us that people in Thessalonica who were not working, they were a distraction. Do you get that? That's the problem. They were a distraction. They were creating disorder. That's what that word means, that idleness. It's talking about disorder, something that is not in line. It's not in order. They did not have order in their lives. They were disorderly. Because they didn't have work to keep them busy, they occupied their time going from place to place, causing distractions and creating more work for other people. That's what they were doing. They put a lot of effort into not doing anything productive. That's what they were working at. They tried hard to not do things that were productive. And so everything that they did became a distraction for those people who were actually producing an agathos, an honest and an honorable work. And so they began to face the temptation. They began to face struggle. Then when the honest worker brought home his food and his wages, who do you think was the one standing there wanting to take what the honest worker had made and eat it? He stood there with his hands out expecting to eat and to be cared for. And the Bible tells us that as believers, we are not to be that guy. He says, don't be that guy. You need to work. It keeps you out of the sin of being idle and being a busybody. But the second reason that we should work is that I'm gonna, this is going to maybe even surprise you a little bit. I'm going to take you back to chapter 4, verse 28. We're going to take a look at the last part of the verse here. This is the second reason that we need to occupy our minds with an honest day's work, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see that? This is interesting to me. You see, today in our society, we work so that we can provide for our families, don't we? That's honorable. That's what we do. But what does Ephesians say? You're supposed to work for what reason? So that you can have something to share with those other people in the body that don't have the capacity to work with their own hands. That's why you're to work. 
And this is so counterintuitive to absolutely everything that our society teaches us. It's counterintuitive to everything that our society stands for. Think about this. The vast majority of people in our society are happy to work to provide for their families, aren't they? We get that. People want to work to provide for their families. That's great. We understand that it's important for us to care for our wives. We understand that it's important for us to care for our children. And some of those among us who are really generous may even want to care for their parents or their brothers and sisters or even their grandparents. But beyond that, the reason that we work is so that we can have more stuff. Am I right? That's exactly right. The reason that we work is because we want to get more stuff that the moth is going to destroy, the stuff that's going to decay, the stuff that rust will destroy. We want more of that, and we want to hoard it up, and we want to pile it up, and we want to get as much of it as we possibly can because we want more stuff for ourselves. And so we work even harder so that we can have another car. We work even harder so that we can have a bigger TV. Maybe we work even harder so that we can put more into our retirement programs and our IRAs. Listen, We are not to work so that we can just pile up more things for ourselves. Paul tells us here that we should be working so that we can give to those people who are in need. Listen to me. Paul is saying that we are to work so that we can give more, not so that we can get more. Do you see that? You are to work so that you can give more, not so that you can get more. And Paul is speaking specifically of other people in the church And in that church family, and I wonder, how many of you have ever thought to yourselves, you know, if I could only work harder, if I could only prove myself a more faithful laborer to my employer and to my boss, then he would give me a raise and I could give more to people who are in need. Is that what you think? Or do you think, if I could earn just a little bit more, I could afford a bigger house? If I could work a little bit harder and prove myself a little bit better, I could afford a vacation home. I could afford a new car for my spouse. How many of you have thought that to yourselves? Listen, to unbelievers, what I'm telling you right now is radical. To those people who do not know God, what I'm telling you right now is unbelievable. This is foolishness. The natural approach is to get more stuff and to hoard it and to gather it up and to fill garages and to fill sheds and to fill storage units with more of your stuff. But the New Testament principle is that you work harder and you work more diligently. And in doing good work, remember, but you do that more so that you can give more to those people who are in need. That is the scriptural pattern. That's the scriptural pattern. Listen, that's why we work. What does Jesus say in Luke 14? This is what he says. But when you give a feast, invite what kind of people? The poor. Invite the crippled. Invite the lame and the blind. And you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Listen, work harder so that you can give more to the people who can't pay you back. Don't charge them interest. Give to them. Bless them. Work harder so you can be more generous with the people in need. There are people right here at Root River Church who are struggling. And struggle here at Root River Church is nothing like the struggle in places that Aaron just came from. The struggle that you have here in America is nothing like the struggle of those people living in the dumps in Guatemala. We think that we struggle. 
We have no concept of what it means to be poor. We have absolutely no concept. And Paul says, work more so that you can give more. Work more so that you can give more. Yes, there are people here who have need and we need to help them. Paul's instruction is that you and I should give to the people who are right here in this church body who can't help themselves. Yes, they should work to provide for themselves to whatever extent they're physically able to do that. But you and I should help the shortfall. I wonder, please don't raise your hand, but have you ever worked a little bit harder and a little bit longer so that you could give more to somebody who was hurting financially? Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone out of your way to give to somebody right here at Root River Church who can't afford to make their car payment or to pay their electrical bills? Have you ever given more to somebody who doesn't have enough food to feed their kids and their grandkids? Because if you're like me, you've worked harder to buy a bigger TV. You've worked harder to get more stuff for you. Have you ever worked harder and sacrificed any of your own things so that you could be a blessing to other people in the church body and give more to those who can't help themselves, those who are widows and orphans, single mothers, single fathers? Have you ever done anything to help those people financially who can't pay their medical bills? Have you ever done anything to help those people? So you're not to be the one who steals like other people do. You're not the one who should be taking more time on your time card than you've got coming. You're not one who should steal from God, but you're to work an honest and honorable work that you can provide for your family, and then you're to go the extra mile that you may have enough to provide for your extended family right here in Root River Church, right in your church family. Go the extra mile to provide for those people who cannot provide for themselves. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 28. Father, I thank You that You've poured out blessing on me. I thank You for all the blessing that You've poured out on my, my family and all the people of this church family. I thank You, God, that I always have all that I need and even more. I thank You that as a general rule, everyone here has all that we ever need and even more. I pray, Lord, that You would put a passion in my heart to help those who can't help themselves. I pray, God, that You would help us to model Your design to the rest of the world. I pray, God, that You would help us to be honest in our dealings, that You would help us to not be people who would willingly steal and knowingly use dishonest scales, but that You would help the people of Root River Church to be people who commit ourselves to do honorable work that we can bring glory to You and to Your kingdom and to Your name. Lord, let us work so that we can build up and support the body of Christ, that more people may be one to the kingdom of Christ. That's what it's all about.